Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello and welcome to the March 2008 edition of the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Steve Fraser about the symbolic ideal of Wall Street to Americans. I think for most of Wall Street's history, it was seen as a kind of alien presence in American life. Strange, secretive, dangerous, uh, uh, and not a part of the American grain. But what was striking to me was how much that has changed and Jay Perini about the importance of poetry for both individuals and for cultures. You know, just let me take an obvious example, the war on terror. I mean, this is, you know, to what extent is this a war on terror? Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty. Now President Bush declares a war on terror. Well, you know, um, I think it's a, a misunderstanding of the nature of metaphor. I mean, the word terror, I mean, has, is essentially a symbol. It's a very abstract symbol. Um, are we really making a war on terror itself here? It's very confusing. Stay tuned. Wall Street and the financial community are certainly front and center in most newscasts today. But in his new book, Wall Street, America's Dream Palace, Steve Frazier looks at how Americans have seen Wall Street and its more well-known investors throughout the republic's history. Steve Frazier is an author, an editor, and a historian whose many publications include the award-winning books Labor Will Rule, Sidney Hillman and the Rise of American Labor, and Every Man a Speculator, A History of Wall Street and American Life. He is senior lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania and co-founder of the American Empire Project, Metropolitan Books. Wall Street, America's Dream Palace, is part of Yale University Press's Icons of America series, which includes Gore Vidal's Inventing a Nation, Washington Adams Jefferson, Mark Kingwell's Nearest Thing to Heaven, The Empire State Building and American Dreams, and Joel Ozerski's The Hamburger, A History, which will be featured in the next episode of this podcast. Steve Frazier, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Uh, your book, Wall Street, America's Dream Palace, looks at how Americans have perceived Wall Street through four different archetypes. Were you surprised by the way Wall Street has always seemed to be viewed as the other by American citizens? Uh, well, to tell you the truth, I was more surprised uh, to learn that uh, of late, by which I mean during the last quarter century or so, uh, that Wall Street has, in fact, been embraced as part of the American family. It, it, it didn't surprise me that, peop- I think for most of Wall Street's history, it was seen as a kind of alien presence in American life, strange, secretive, dangerous, uh, uh, and not a part of the American grain. But what was striking to me was how much that has changed, although not entirely, uh, since roughly the 1980s through to the present. Uh, And I think that says a lot about uh, the transformation in American culture and the degree to which Americans feel not only are they spectators at a kind of strange set of rituals going on in the street, but actually participate to some very significant degree in the life of the street, which they never did before. And so perhaps it makes it seem 
more familiar than it did uh, to our ancestors. You can think of a lot of things that might have caused that CNBC, um, for people's 401ks, and really the development of the whole idea of shareholder capitalism, which is a little bit different than the managerial capitalism before the 1980s. Yes, uh, all of those things are, are, abs- are absolutely a part of the story. The very fact that roughly half of American families are now invested in the, in the stock market, albeit passively, mainly by virtue of their uh, holdings in pension funds and mutual funds, and they aren't active players, so to speak, in the street. Nonetheless, they are there. They're invested there. Their futures, uh, to some degree or another, often very significantly, are tied up with what goes on in the street. They, they watch it a bit. They consult with their investment advisors if they have one. They at least look, perhaps, at the reports they get from their pension funds. All of these things never happened uh, before. They happened a bit in the 1920s, which is the other time when uh, Wall Street became more of a kind of participant than a spectator sport, but uh, nothing like the degree to which that's uh, happening uh, today. And, and a lot of the talk about America being, uh, whether true or not, an ownership society, a kind of shareholder democracy, uh, has uh, had a certain effect on people's attitude about the street. Just the phenomenon of day trading uh, is another way that people have actually actively entered uh, and become players. Uh, the Internet, the advent of the Internet and of, the, of, of, of information technology generally has suggested to people, invited people to participate and to assure them, I think mistakenly, that uh, a place they used to think of as very secretive and, a, and as a place that you had to be an insider to hope to be able to succeed at is now less that, that the information is out there, that everybody has access to it, that it's a more transparent arena. Uh, this has persuaded people, uh, although sometimes to their great chagrin, that the place is <laughs> uh, uh, you know, knowable and therefore a place they can... Uh, uh, can participate in because day traders are just kind of the bucket shop players of the uh, of the 21st century. In some, and they ways. are. They have some of the same kind of their their uh, you know uh, plebeian ambitions to make it big, strike it rich, uh, to kind of uh, play the same game that the big boys are playing uh, that the old bucket shop uh, uh, partisans used to have, um, uh, and um, and uh, they are like that and and. While the bucket shops were often completely felonious enterprises back in the 19th century, uh, the day trader is entering a world which at least seems to be on the on the up and up. Uh, I mean, bucket shops operated in a way where there actually were no there were no wires <laughs> leading into those bucket shops, recording the actual sale and the purchase and sale of actual uh, securities. Uh, now the the day trader is at least at least knows that there's something real going on out there. I guess we should explain a bucket what a bucket shop was. For, I mean, yeah, since they don't exist shop, anymore. I think they, uh, yeah, which it, they were just kind of little storeroom operations. Uh, they might be a street corner shop where uh, just ordinary people would come in to uh, speculate on, on at least uh, to speculate on what they thought were legitimate stock transactions. And they have uh, te- telegraph uh, uh, wires set up there. And when there was when there were telephones, they'd have telephones in the bucket shop. But the bucket shop operators were really scam artists. They were real confidence men. Uh, of the sort that I talk about in my book, there weren't any real stocks being traded at all, and uh, and these bucket shops would open one day and close close down a week later, uh, and 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 skip town and open up a bucket shop on the other side of town, and 
Um, and in fact, the, the legitimate stock market, the New York Stock Exchange, tried to put these bucket shops out of business and eventually succeeded in doing that. Uh, to some degree, they were like, uh, if people may have seen the movie Boiler Room, they're, they're kind of like the, the Boiler Room uh, uh, operation that, uh, that movie portrays, uh, which are really uh, kind of confidence games. What about the street itself? I think listeners might be shocked, especially people who uh, have experience of Wall Street now, to get a sense of exactly how rigged the game was even on the street itself back in the, like the 19th century. Yeah, I mean, uh, w- one of the one of the interesting things is that some of the earliest big-time Wall Street uh, operators started out their careers as really nothing much more than confidence men. This is true of Daniel Drew, uh, who <laughs> the, the very uh, phrase "watered stock" is is comes from an activity that Daniel Drew used to engage in before he came anywhere near the New York stock market. He was a cattle drover, which means. He drove cattle from the hinterland into the New York City market uh, to sell to uh, to uh, uh, you know wholesalers, meat wholesalers in the city and butchers. But before he got to the city, he, just before he got to the city, he would uh, unload big salt licks from his wagon so that the cattle would uh, uh, lick the, the salt, become enormously thirsty, drink gallons and gallons of water, and then he'd bring them into the marketplace. And, of course, they'd weigh a great deal more than they actually weighed, thanks to all that water they had. And that's where the term watered stock came from. Anyway, people like Drew and even uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt and Jay Gould and Jim Fisk, these are some of the uh, Wall Street uh, uh, more, more infamous and big-time operators of mid-19th, late-19th century uh, Wall Street, uh, began their lives as, as sort of confidence men. And uh, Drew and, and Fisk and Gould, uh, who controlled for a while the Erie Railroad or it had, it were embattled with Vanderbilt for control of the Erie Railroad, simply printed up stock as well in order to wage uh, uh, their battles. Uh, they had there were British investors in Erie stock still suing the company in the early 20th century for fraudulent sales that Drew and Fisk and Gould had perpetrated in 1870. Uh, so uh, there's a great deal of chicanery uh, that goes on and, and, and goes on all throughout the history of the street. You know, some of the biggest. Uh, uh, bankers, uh, Wall Street bankers of the 1920s were exposed as uh, operators of what then were called pools or investment trusts, which were essentially insider trading scams uh, where they would uh, buy up a particular stock. They would conspire to buy up the stock in a particular company, encouraging mass investment by people in that company, and then dump the stock suddenly, making off with their profits, and, uh, and while the average guy who invested was left with the losses. And these kinds of schemes were uh, investigated during the during the depression by the uh, by the uh, Roosevelt administration and exposed. So, so long before the days of Enron and and so on, uh, uh, Wall Street has been at various times uh, engaged in in confidence games. And one could then take a look at saying, well, if the railroads were the biggest confidence game of the late 19th century, it was sorting out that confidence game that really made J.P. Morgan's career. Yes, I think that's that's a good point. Uh, the railroads were, on the one hand, an enormous material accomplishment, and to some degree, the Wall Street has helped finance and deserve credit for that. On the other hand, they were looting those railroads. Uh, they were loaded down with watered stock, uh, debt, insupportable debt, and also engaged in this kind of fierce self-destructive competition. 
uh, uh, one of the alleged virtues of the free market. But Morgan, in the late 1880s and continuing on through the turn of the century, steps into this situation and he said, look, this is, this is chaotic. Uh, these railroads are going periodically bankrupt. When they go bankrupt, they're bankrupting all kinds of other companies. They're causing panics on the street. This free market competition is becoming deadly and fatal to the whole system. And so what Morgan does is he, he imposes, because he has the piece, he's such a powerful investment banker with so many uh, resources at his disposal, he actually imposes a kind of private concordant, a kind of uh, piece, a, what is in those days called the Morganization of the Railroad, where he consolidated ownership, uh, eliminated a lot of underlying competitive uh, companies, stopped new railroads from competing with old railroads, placed his own men on the boards of directors of these railroad companies, wrung out the watered stock, uh, and, uh, and centralized management, uh, because he actually, although Morgan is identified as a great capitalist hero, and in some senses he is, he was not for the free market, and he was not for the kind of wild speculations that uh, these earlier uh, Wall Street financiers and railroad barons had been uh, involved in, and he kind of imposes a discipline on the street and on the railroad industry uh, which lasts for quite a time and functions, he functions kind of as the nation's private central banker. There is no Federal Reserve during Morgan's lifetime. There was no central bank to kind of regulate credit and so on. And Morgan kind of, and, and other investment banks as well, uh, take it upon themselves to exercise that function. He's of really course, they do so in order to enrich themselves and that becomes a problem. <laughs> Uh, but I was going to get into that since since Morgan is considered one of the aristocrats, uh, one of the archetypes that you talk about, one of the four. But it, didn't he always portray what he and his and his friends are doing really as a public service for the United States? Exactly. He said that it, wa- it wasn't about money, it wasn't about monopoly, it wasn't about building trusts and driving other businesses out of business, that it was really a kind of disinterested public service, and that he, he felt that he and his colleagues, this kind of white-shoe fraternity on the street, were best equipped to guide uh, the economy and portrayed themselves that way, and we're hero worship for it. It's, it's one of the reasons he he is he is he is even to this day seen as a kind of uh, heroic figure in the streets uh, in the streets uh, past, uh, and and does uh, on certain critical occasions help to uh, uh, prevent or abort serious panics is a famous one that begins to happen in 1907 where he's instrumental in stopping it from becoming much more widespread. Um, the problem is that he, by, uh, he, he also, and I don't mean to, to completely personalize this, he and this whole fraternity of investment bankers uh, also exercised enormous power over the capital resources of the country, which meant that it could be denied and was denied to new entrants, new competitors, people who might threaten technological innovations which would undermine the value of old assets that the Morgan fraternity controlled. Uh, they felt themselves to be so uh, I- important that they felt there was no need for government supervision uh, of their activities, no role. In fact, they felt themselves to be the peers of uh, elected officials, maybe even their superiors, uh, so that uh, what came to be known as the Money Trust, uh, which uh, Morgan kind of personified, uh, came to be heavily criticized by people like Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and the whole uh, world of uh, progressive reform, uh, which says that when you had, which said to these people, when you're, it's it's not wise, safe, efficient. 
uh, or lawful and, the, and undermines democracy to vest in the hands of a very small circle and elite uh, control over resources which affect the well-being of everybody. Wall Street, America's Dream Palace, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Steve Frazier, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. What use is poetry in a 24-hour, profit-driven, media-saturated world? In his new book, Why Poetry Matters, Jay Perini confronts this issue head-on, examining the power of poetry and the influence it can extend over our lives, if only we let it. Jay Perini is a poet, novelist, biographer, and the D.E. Axon Professor of English at Middlebury College. Why Poetry Matters is part of the Why X Matters series at Yale University Press, in which authors will present a concise argument for the continuing relevance of an important person or idea. Currently, the other book in this series is Why Ardent Matters by Elizabeth Young Brule. Hello, and welcome to the Yale Press podcast addendum interview with Jay Perini, the author of Why Poetry Matters. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. This is the full interview conducted on March 27, 2008. An edited version was originally part of episode 14 of the show. Jay Perini, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. There are probably quite a few people in the world who might be interested in poetry, but find tackling a poem to be quite daunting, you know, given the language a poet uses and the topics a poet writes about. And what advice would you give one of those people? Well, you know, I don't find poetry as intimidating as m- most people do because I've spent a lot of time with it. And, and I think that the, the way to approach poetry is as pleasure. You know, people always enjoy listening to music, say Bob Dylan or, you know, James Taylor, uh, Simon and Garfunkel. You know, there's real poetry in, in that kind of music, and it's extremely accessible. And the truth is, a great deal of the poetic tradition, going back to the ancient Greeks, right up through uh, the 20th century, is, is pretty accessible. I mean, anyone can read Robert Frost, for example. A, a, a fifth grader can read Robert Frost and, and get intense pleasure from the language and the, and the shape of the poem on the page. So I think that um, just getting some experience with some of the poets that are not too difficult uh, is probably the best way to go. And um, anyone who likes music, I think, will, will like poetry if they give it any chance at all. When we talk about men like James Taylor and Bruce Springsteen, isn't that really where the genesis of the term lyric poetry comes from, being able to accompany yourself to music? Sure. You know, the ancient poets would, would recite lyric poems uh, to the sound of the lyre. And so that's what, hence the word lyric. I mean, poetry is essentially musical la- musical language, and so it's it's. And W. H. Auden wants to find poetry as memorable language, but I think I'd put the word musical in there. It's language. It's a system of linked sounds, and it appeals to the ear. It appeals to the senses, and it stays in the head. Poetry is quite wonderful that way. It's like songs stick with you all day long when you hear a good song. A good poem stays in your head forever. So where do you think this hesitation comes from, some people wanting to tackle poetry? I remember my grandfather, um, who passed away in the 90s, because it was part of his curriculum growing up and he had to memorize poetry, there were poems that he could still remember as he was moving into his 80s that he learned when he was a little boy. And you don't really get that much anymore. Why, why all of a sudden have we kind of like, has poetry not become such an important part of our culture? No, it's, the fault lies with modernism, when poetry became very self-consciously learned and difficult. Sometimes very, very good poets, such as Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, Wallace Stevens, nevertheless wrote poems that were, as I said, self-consciously difficult. And there's been a tradition in 20th century poetry of poetry that is obscure. I think this has, in many ways, 
gone against the mainstream of poetry, which flows from the storytelling Greeks through the great Roman storytelling poets right to the present. And so I think that the readers have been put off by this difficult strain in modernism, which has never been the mainstream. I mean, Wordsworth is very accessible. Coleridge is very accessible. Robert Frost is accessible. Right up to the present, anybody could pick up a poem by, say, Mary Oliver. And, and, and millions do and find it extremely uh, accessible and entertaining. Billy Collins is another good example. Poetry is mainly quite accessible. It's only these exceptions. But the problem is um, school teachers have focused on a lot of this hard poetry, difficult poetry, even college teachers. Uh, and, and I think that's had a very bad effect on poetry. The name of the book is Why Poetry Matters, and I'd like to take a step back really to the beginning. You mentioned the ancient Greeks, and it obviously mattered very much to them because men like Plato and Aristotle and even the Romans had very divergent views about what poetry should mean to uh, the Republic. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, about the controversies of poetry really starting back as far as Plato? Well, you know, in um, his writing, Plato um, said he would banish poets from his ideal Republic. And his reason for this was, well, too manyfold, but Twofold, I'd say mainly. First, firstly, poets were liars. That is, um, language is a representation of an imitation. I mean, in Platonic um, philosophy, what's real is what is sort of the ideal table in heaven, let's say. There is no such thing as a real table. So there's only the ideal form of, of the, or the idea of the table in heaven. So when you see a table on this planet, it's a kind of inferior reproduction of God's perfect table. And then when a poet describes or a painter paints a table, it's a copy of a copy. And so Plato argued that poetry was at too many removes from reality to be useful. And so that's one reason he wanted to get rid of poets. But I think what on really lay behind his antipathy for poets was his belief that poets are, are, are somehow waylaying the young. Uh, teaching them to enjoy the pleasures of life, uh, sexual pleasures, wine, good food, beautiful nature, walking in the woods, romance. And he thought that this distracted young people from their duties as citizens. And so it was a kind of a puritanical response to the pleasures of language in poetry. And, um, and so you get this argument running right through the ancients, uh, Aristotle, Horace, and Longinus, for example, take up some of the challenge put down by Plato and, and argue against him. And then we have the, the cudgels picked up again in the Renaissance. We see Sir Philip Sidney defending poetry. And many poets, right up through Shelley, defending the art of poetry from those who wanted to put it down for various reasons, but mostly the reasons outlined by Plato in his original anti uh, poetic uh, writings. So in that, uh, you get into later on in your book discussions of really 20th century philosophy. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's easy to say that poetry is just an imitation because at the core poetry is language. And up until really the 20th century, everybody more or less thought language always referred to something, that you couldn't just have language in and of itself, that you were pointing towards a separate reality. That changed in the 20th century. How did that change, and how did that affect really our concept of poetry? Well, the 20th century philosophers, maybe even beginning with some of the late 19th century philosophers, even going back to Nietzsche and earlier, many of them believed, and I think it's true, that language is the key to philosophic or philosophical understanding. And uh, 
when philosophers such as Wittgenstein came along, a major 20th century thinker, um, the whole question of language was thrown into question. Um, Wittgenstein was trying to understand how words connected to things and, and how um, so much cannot be said, and he wanted to stick to what could be said. Very little could be said with any kind of verification. Once you try to verify truth in a philosophical way, you soon, soon discover that you can't really verify poetic language. Poets make statements which are not true in a philosophical or logical sense. And so there's been a tremendous discussion in the 20th century and early 21st century still about the nature of truth, the nature of, of, of language as it re relates to truth. In other words, what's the connection between words and things? I think it's been discovered that there's a very tenuous connection between words and things. Um, in his later writings, Wittgenstein essentially uh, comes to the conclusion that, you know, we create our own realities in language and, 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 and essentially we declare a certain truth. This is what poets have known all along. The poet Theodore Redke once wrote, uh, I summon a vision and declare it pure. Essentially, that's what poets have done from Homer and, Ver and Virgil and Dante through T.S. Eliot and uh, contemporary poets. They summon a vision, and they declare it true and pure, and um, readers then test that truth, not against some philosophical or quasi-logical uh, testing, but they test it on their own pulse. Does this feel true to me? Um, when a poet describes a landscape, does this seem right or wrong? Is this landscape a spiritual landscape, an inner landscape? And it usually is. Um, poetry is, is language, but it's a very specialized kind of language. It's a language of metaphor, and it's not the language of logic. Using metaphor and being aware of it and, and symbolism is, is not something that I think, it's, I think it's fair to say our culture does really well anymore. Can you, can you give a sense of what poetry means or how a love of poetry can help develop this, this metaphorical knowledge in people? You know, Robert Frost has a wonderful essay called um, Education by Poetry. And in that essay, he argues that if you're not educated properly in the language of metaphor, in the operations of metaphorical thinking, you're not safe to be let loose in the world because you don't know how far you can take a metaphor and how far you can't take a metaphor. Um, you know, just let me take an obvious example, the war on terror. I mean, this is, you know, to what extent is this a war on terror? Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty. Now President Bush declares a war on terror. Well, you know, um, I think it's a, a misunderstanding of the nature of metaphor. I mean, the word terror, I mean, has, is essentially a symbol. It's a very abstract symbol. Um, are we really making a war on terror itself here? It's very confusing. And so I think that, um, in fact, when you're educated in how to make comparisons, that's all metaphors are, comparisons, I think your mind becomes sharper. Poets have actually razor-sharp minds, and they follow their comparisons over many stanzas in a poem. You take a metaphor and you elaborately work it through. That's called a conceit. And poetry teaches readers how to think comparatively, comparing this thing to that thing, how to think symbolically. And um, if you're not educated in these particular analogical operations, I really don't think you are safe in the world because you're going to be easily duped by the media. You're going to be gullible. 
you're not going to be able to have a critical attitude toward all different branches of knowledge. So I think the basis for all thinking is metaphorical. Poetry is metaphorical thinking. And so training in poetry is tremendously useful for any citizen, for anyone who wants to uh, work through the world in an intellectual manner. That is a utilitarian case for uh, poetry. But let's talk about aesthetics. Does poetry really have to be useful to matter, or can poetry be of consequence just because of the beauty of the language? I don't think it can be of, of very great significance just because it's beautiful. I mean, sure. I mean, one can love a phrase and say, yes, that's pretty. Uh, one can look at a painting and say, yes, that's pretty. One can hear a song and say, yes, that's pretty, or a very, very beautiful thing. But I think at some point, beauty becomes truth. Truth becomes beauty. And so Keats understood that connection between beauty and truth. And I think when a poem becomes really significant, um, you're looking at a situation where the language is, yes, beautiful, but it's also saying something true uh, and saying it in ways that make that truth come home to the reader. And, and, and so I think that there's, it, you, you really do need to have both the true aspect of the poem well as the beautiful aspect of the poem for it to lift off into major work. Why Poetry Matters is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Jay Perini, go to www.yalebooks.com slash podcast. Ah, uh, April. It showers bring May flowers, and Uncle Sam is kindly asking you for a check. So when it's raining and you're on a budget, what better way to invest in your future than by picking up a book at the Yale University Press book sale? Just go to www.yalebooks.com, look for the sale banner, and stay dry with a Yale book. For more information about this show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites. Or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com slash podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondek, and if you need comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer, and my name is Chris Gondek. I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University Press. All rights reserved.